Okay, so so we're back with our 12th episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast, the first infrastructure podcast to shine a light on what we love to call utility strategy. Uh, as we all know, buried utilities pose an enormous risk to any infrastructure project and create extreme uncertainty amongst the different stakeholders. The thing is that with the right utility strategy, we're able to mitigate that risk and streamline our project, which is what our podcast is all about. Uh, sharing and gaining all kinds of insights that will enable just that. Helping project managers, utility coordinators, estimators, mappers, planners, designers, engineers, and any other stakeholder overcome the challenges of buried utilities in our right of way. Uh, to help us do just that, we have here with us today, uh, Jason Marchuk. Am I saying this correctly? Yeah, I just say uh, Marchuk, but my grandfather, who is Ukrainian, Marchuk. would probably be very proud of the way you pronounced it the first time through. So. Okay, good. I, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so, so Jason is a senior VP sales uh, of uh, ProStar, which offers precision mapping solutions that capture uh, record and display locating and SUF, SUE efforts in real time. Uh, Jason has been part of the mapping infrastructure industry for quite a while, uh, taking on key roles in companies like uh, Oracle, Hexagon, um, and others. Uh, so, uh, Jason, without uh, further ado, uh, let's dive right into it. Tell us, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me, guys. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on these shows. Um, I, I recently, I'll do a little plug here. I uh, about a month ago, I did one for the Geoholics podcast, and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, we love. You know, it, guys. it's amazing when you someone puts a few letters in front of your job title, and all of a sudden you get invites to do these kind of things. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty fun. Pretty fun to be honest. So I, I really. Yeah, appreciate yeah, the yeah. Uh, the offer to come on with you guys. Um, no, your intro is on point. You know, I uh, uh, I joined ProStar uh, February fifteenth of uh, twenty twenty one. So coming up, just you know, a little over ten months. Um, oh, and, look at uh, that! So you are a uh, a COVID hire. <laughs> I am a COVID hire. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I am a COVID hire. There's, you know, COVID babies, COVID hires, all these kind of things that are out there now. We can uh, we'll, we'll plug those terms 20 or a generation down the line. But yeah, that is me. Um, yeah. And it was really neat, you know, coming on board. Um, it's uh, I, We will get into the solution more, but, um, you know, it was really neat to be able to join um, right after our public, our company went publicly traded. Um, and then we released our flagship application point man, which anybody who knows SAS solutions, software as a service, when they drop, they're, they're kind of in pseudo beta for almost perpetuity. Right. But I mean, we're, we're still, yeah. there's a maturation process that is coming on. So, you know, right now, start of this calendar year, which is aligns with the fiscal year, I'd kind of say we're, uh, you know, how would I describe it? We're almost in like year one of sales, really, you know, that we, we've got a, a, a plan to, to, to kind of take off. Um, but, you know, before I joined, I'd spent time with Oracle's construction and engineering global business unit, which is awesome. I mean, Oracle is kind of always gives you an eye on, on what good looks like. Um, the follow the dollar, the commercial entanglements they have are, are, are really good insight into how to do business. And then, um, as you mentioned, prior to that, I was with Hexagon and Intergraph. Um, so if, if people aren't familiar um, with that company, Hexagon was a, a Swedish company that acquired Intergraph, which was actually based out of uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And they generally had two uh, trains of business. One was security, government and infrastructure, which implied a little bit more geospatial um, from a contextual perspective, and then a process and power and marine division, which is actually the division I joined, oddly. Um, but that was a lot of your industrial engineering, refining, uh, petrochemical, that type of stuff. So there is entanglement there as well, a little bit of cross-pollination between the two arms of the business. Um, but it was really great. I think, I mean, you know, um, some of the topics we're going to talk about today really, uh, you know, were hammered home during my time at Hexagon Intergraph. And then before that, you kind of just, you know, you're, you're getting your bearings, getting your feet for the first half of your career. And that was with uh, AMEC, um, which is a tier one EPC. I'd kind of put them on par with your Fleurs, your Jacobs, uh, you know. It is not AMEC like anymore. 
No, it isn't. It went from, yeah, they're part of a And you know, the funny thing is, I mean, and this is the nature of, I mean, we could wax on this for a long time or, or uh, you know, uh, pontificate, but, you know, I see a lot of things in the industry and it, it's difficult because when you think about engineering companies, there's almost always been this race to the floor, depending on the economic conditions at the current time. And it's like, when that happens, the race to the floor in terms of their pricing and whatnot, you get, there's only so many that can survive on a large scale. And it seems like that's why you get these uh, amalgamations and mergers. Yeah. yeah, you really do. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd, but anyways, that was a career arc. So kind of, you know, you, you come out of school, you have a degree in geography, GIS, so the minor in computer science. It's like, okay, what do I do? Well, basically all I've done is proved I know how to learn. And since then, that's been the arc, right? Like kind of 25 so, years of uh, learning on the fly. You graduated from McGill, I believe? No, no, no. no. Uh, University of Calgary. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What year did you graduate? But I, uh, so I graduated, what was it? Nine, uh, nine, no, 99. Okay, so. We may, so I start. So I we might have crossed paths. So a little bit. Of, <laughs> we, we may have. So I I graduated high school in '94, and then I I I played hockey for a year. Um, well, tried um, to see if I could you know get a maybe a scholarship or whatever. I, I wasn't you know happening. So then I went uh, went back to school, and uh, it was kind of like because I started halfway through a year, I. I kind of took four and a half years to complete. So I was basically done in 99 aside from one course. I had to take one course in the spring to graduate. So yeah, I kind of, I did the long duration uh, school rather than short. Duration. So I'm going to ask you what the best day at the UFC was. Was it Bermuda shorts day? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the last Thursday before yeah, exams. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, always. Yeah. Bermuda shorts day. That's, uh, I remember the, uh, yeah. I remember wide mouth Mason being there the year I was, uh, but, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Do you remember that year? They, yeah, well, I remember one of the first years, too, they had tragically hip, which was like, that was no small yeah. feat to get hip. Yeah. Um, but that was, I mean, talk about, uh, things are different now, right? I mean, there was a, they, they encouraged heavy drinking back in those days. In fact, I remember with the student ID, you could go down on Bermuda Shorts Day to the Fox and Firkin, and for like a quarter, they'd give you 10 drink on Bermuda Shorts Day. Like, uh, I mean, uh, in, in what world yeah. does this make any no. sense at all? But of course, like yeah. when you're like 20, you're like, this is the greatest day ever, you know? So yeah. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, but looking back. So Jason, it, se it seems like when, when, you, when we take a look at your yep. career, it seems like you've kind of been part of the SaaS world of infrastructure for the majority of your career. So how have you seen it develop? Like, because if we're real for a second, if we're genuine, if, you're, if we're true to ourselves, we can say that the construction civil engineering industry is a bit behind regarding technology and implementing of technology in our SOPs. Yeah, you know... Um... I think there, there's a couple of things there. So number one, when I look, you know, so when I joined, so if I can go back and I'll provide a little bit of context for my answer here. But like when I was at AMEC, um, an EPC, you know, we, we did a, uh, a bespoke GIS system for the uh, city of Calgary. It was for all of its riverine assets. So it was like really, it was, it was water civil type of work, right? So we're looking at like areas where there is riprap or, you know, um, where we had outfall locations or, you know, poured concrete support, this kind of stuff, groins extending into the river to prevent erosion, all that type of stuff. Okay. So there was the effort to capture that information and then document it and tie it into an enterprise system that could be used with parks and recs so they could see adjacencies where work was happening and they could kind of, you know, be cheaper by the dozen uh, in terms of executing their work. I love doing that. And I worked very closely with Na uh, a design team in Nashville that did a lot of programming. Of course, in EPC, their only commodity is really their resource. So they're always a little bit loath to just, you know, copy and place because where's the where's the money downstream of that? That's not to say they all have their own applications like AMEC has made. Uh, they have a, a tool called Convero, which has been out for like 40 years. I think it started probably in Fortran, went to Cobalt and on. You know, it's probably originally punch card. I think everybody who has any kind of programming degree touched on that. So that's what took me to Hexagon Intergraph that I wanted to do more on the application side. Um, but when I got there, you know, there wasn't, you know, and I'm going to say 2012, 2013, we were starting to see more 
especially in the, the construction industry, more things on that SaaS role. But there's still on-premise still dominated a lot of the stuff. So for me, when I was at Hexagon, a lot of the engineering enterprise design tools were on-premise applications. And I went through some of the pains where they were trying to re-architect them for the cloud. But, you know, it's kind of like trying to ride a dragon, I think, to take things that were originally architected for on-prem to put into the cloud. So we saw a lot of pains with that. And, you know, just the, the, the commercial margins that can impact your ability to sell these things out in the, in, in the market. But since then, you know, I, what I've been attuned to and where I think software as a service has a real implication is that, you know, from a total cost of ownership perspective for people in construction and engineering, it's like, it, you know, it may not actually be cheaper. But that's not the point. They're, they gain a lot by offshoring that risk to the provider, right? Like the risk of disaster recovery, no delete framework, full audit traceable, all this type of stuff. And you don't have to have the worry of having like a full-time DBA tuning things to make sure it works and all that. The other piece of that that I think is really critically important and what I learned as well, and I know we're going to talk about data centricity down the road, but it's a, it's a big ask to ask anybody in construction and engineering to go entirely in one ecosystem. It's just not going to happen, right? Like when you start looking at materials management specifications, procurement, tying into ERP, human resources, capital allocation, like they're going to have, you, you, you kind of need to have each one is a system. Yeah, of its and you own. need your eggs in different baskets because if anything were to fall down, you're left like seven ways. Like you have no chance, right? So it's almost like the best yeah. practice to have these in different places. So then when you bring SaaS into the fold, for me, what it looks like is like, well, now it's really incumbent upon the providers to ensure that it, it is, it can be a platform. And every, every construction company, every engineering company, perhaps even every owner is going to want to have a different, you know, they, they may have, you know, like it's the 80-20 rule, like, you know, 80% of them are going to be exactly the same in terms of what they need to accomplish, but they're going to have slightly different mechanisms in play. And I think that ability to have a platform where, you know, you're not siloed, where, you know, your different databases, the data sets can talk, it's critically important. And I think, you know, a lot of SaaS applications um, are, are making that easier than having these really obtrusive on-premise installs that are kind of inherently a little bit more siloed. Um, and I mean, I know there's a lot, you know, people probably agree or disagree in and about, but I mean, I think what's nice about it is that it's, it's an easier platform um, again for construction engineering to be a part of. And it, it inherently, I think allows more people to, to participate in those workflows. And when that happens, you know, you can provide context, conjecture, anecdotal information, ancillary information, whatever synonym you want, it allows people to participate in your workflows and your work processes, your business processes, and ultimately yield a better product, I think. So, so that's a really long answer to a, to a short question there, David, but. Sorry, Jason, oh, uh, going answer. through your yeah. career, you were a, ge you were a ge geography major, GIS and geography major, correct? Yeah. And a little bit of, correct. with a little bit of computer science tucked away there. Yeah. So. What is your uh, what is your touch on the infrastructure world? Like, how did you actually get involved in the infrastructure world? Were you going out collecting data? Were you putting together uh, models? Were you, what was your actual uh, interaction with the infrastructure over the years? And in terms of its growth, like right now, over the last five six years, I've seen an exponential growth in in the uh, in the in the e-market, you know, the electronic market in terms of uh, conveyance of information and in terms of use of use of uh, electronic information. Well, back, you know, five, six years ago, this wasn't a case in point. You got hired during COVID. That would have been an e-process. It's not like you would have gone through the standard, uh, it's not like you would have gone through the standard, you know, uh, interview process where you go down, you meet a few times. I'm, I'm sure that you've had several Zoom conversations. So... And of course, here we go. The, the exact, the exact issues of working from home with the, the uh, distractions right through it through. <laughs> but that's it. So yeah. hopefully you can hear me on that. But no, that's no. okay. We, we we are well aware of what. Yeah, we, uh, it's okay. For myself as well, my my daughter was at home for the last couple of weeks. You know, doing homeschooling, so I'd be sitting. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. back to the question. Again, yeah. yeah a lot to unpack there. So yeah, my career, you know, when I, um, and I think you're always a, a bit of a product of your environment, right? Like I, I, I went to school in Calgary. So there's always going to be that 
energy focus, right? Like that primary resource, um, you know, like I mean, you know, people who came out of say like, uh, you know, chemical engineering or process engineering or electrical, what were they? They were either working on, you know, um, um, like refineries, petrochemical, or maybe, you know, um, the logging industry, right? Something like that. So anyways, Alberta-based though, that's kind of always been the undertone of what we do. Most of the work I've done has supported that in some some to some level even uh work that was often like heavy civil of nature okay would be you know dams and spillways well it's still power generation right like i mean so like the hydropower or whatever so when it came to my like i did some field collection just to kind of to be out there you know to so and i'd say that was more of a vetting or validation of collection parameters we had in place for gis to ensure that what we were collecting made sense from a design process that that design process, whatever was, you know, we were helping collect could propagate into, you know, construction eventually, and then would make sense at the, for the end customer's system of record, right? So when it came to collecting that, you know, I would just say like, for me, it was always like, well, obviously this is implied by utilities, but linear assets, but it tended to be more of the, the main line type of stuff is what I originally work so that's like your your primary pipelines right like not your not your gas and distribution to you know from business to uh, a consumer or whatever right it would be like the main line so that's that's what i kind of cut my teeth on was more along that stuff or you know your if it was anything from like a hydropower perspective it would be again like the main power out from the from the facility and then to a you know a trunk line or whatever and then off so that's and I I, I kind of looked at that from a mapping perspective, and that's where I, I think I have a little bit of unique perspective. Like a lot of people in the GIS space, um, there's that joke: GIS stands for Get It Surveyed, right? I mean, I, I think GIS <laughs> is good, and I love. I mean, that's what I went to school for. But once you see the full scope of design, and then construction and execution, and then operations and maintenance, you realize it is just a very small piece, and it's very you know kind of like. Uh, more context there is and gis is kind of like it's the it's the gold standard of how to lie with statistics really if if you're not careful right that you can make something look because it looks really good and arcgis online and you can make it look fantastic but i mean how accurate is the data you know it, I, i'm not saying it's not accurate but it you can make it look accurate without it being accurate right and i and i've lived through that as well where someone says here's the data and back in you know when, like 20 odd years ago um, we weren't quite using the old hockey puck with the crosshairs to digitize on a, on a board, but it was the same thing. You know, you'd rubber sheet, you'd stretch it out. You've got some raster image and you're clicking. It's like, I mean, now we're going to say this is like sub meter. No, uh, you know, you might say it, but I mean, is it really accurate or not? So, I mean, you start going through that. And then in other places in my career, when you start looking at things when I was at Hexagon, they were a real pioneer, them and in the Viva from Enterprise Engineering Design was that that data centric model, like knowing not only where every asset is, but like, I mean, some cases it could be bolt ups, fit ups, welds, stuff like this. I mean, that implies a level of, obviously there's a spatial context to it, the adjacency, but in some cases it's more of a thematic representation of what's out there. It doesn't necessarily have a physical geographic location, but when you start combining the two, then it becomes, you know, really high yield from an operations and maintain maintenance perspective. And I think that's where, what we're doing now, what, you know, what 4M is doing as well is putting that high precision into your asset management lifecycle, really, right? From a, from a location perspective. And I think that I think what, raises the what, bar, you know? Sorry. I think that uh, um, every guest that has been on this podcast, we always come back to talking about as-built and the accuracy of the data and what, a lot of uh, the people we talk to love to say about as-builts that they're more like as-maybes. Yeah. And I think, I think that that at the core of the problem of, uh, uh, of the issue that we're dealing with, that's, uh, that's uh, buried utilities, I think that the transitioning between uh, what you call documents and moving that to data I think that's the biggest thing that's happening at the moment. And I think that uh, companies that are leading that front are the ones that are really, really solving the problem. I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, 
until I went to Hexagon and really started working there, I, I, I joined as an industry consultant, so I wasn't in sales, right? And the an industry consultant basically liaised between the the product center proxy team, which was really the, the configuration and deployment or implementation, right? And then what the customer wanted. So you basically, you'd be the customer advocate internally and the the product center advocate externally facing the customer to try and bring them together, right? And that's when I really started to understand the process of having something be data centric, right? And and I mean, digital twin uh, and was really, you know, that that buzzword came out after or during the time when I was at Hexagon. But I mean, that was something they were practicing in advance of that, you know, with with the data centric model. And I think there's a few things that are really neat with it that that really help. And it's, you know, when I look at something from your, you know, when you look at the asset life cycle, okay, you start with like a conceptual design. Even before that, you're doing like strategic capital investment and plan. Like, where, where's the value? You know, like if we execute this project, great, we can execute it well. But if you execute the wrong project at the wrong time, you're still going to cook your shareholders money, right? Like, I mean, you need to understand what you're doing when you're getting into it. But then, you know, there's the conceptual design. Then you get into, you know, front-end engineering design, right? And then you get into, like, your detail design, your 30, 60, 90 review. And then you get from there into, you know, your, um, your, your well, you take your pipe specifications there, and that was started in your front-end engineering design, crystallized and detailed. And then you're into your materials management, procurement, fabrication. Then you get into your construction, completions, commissioning, and then handover into operations and O&M, you know. What people don't really understand is, yeah, like if you're doing a, a billion dollar asset or something like that, right? The, you know, the, the total inst or like the total installed cost being a billion dollars, you know, that's great. But when the, once the taps are on, you have to maintain that asset for probably at least 20 years, if not 50 or 60, right? And I mean, so many times you see people get to that end where you're handing over from project space, which is inherently noisy. There's so many things that are going on because you have sub consultants and you have change orders and change management and RFIs in the field and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got to take that into what should be an inherently clean environment. Like it should be sterilized. I mean, you want like, you know, maybe a version and revision history behind what is in your O&M, your, your clean as built environment, but it should be like on a one-to-one -one level. Like I can physically see this valve and there it is on my drawing or whatever right and i think you see a lot of times people rush up to the end the taps are on whatever commodity is flowing if that's traffic right if something's moving on your asset now and the owner has almost nothing to say like for their investment i mean other than it's running now you got to operate and maintain it and what's the first thing they do like they're de-bottlenecking they're looking to improve it almost the second it becomes live and the first thing they do when from a from a bid and in a tender perspective on that, even for the operations and maintenance contracts, the people come out and say, well, we have to, we have to go as built, right? I mean, that's like, it's ridiculous. You literally just built this thing and you have no idea what's there, you know? Um, I find that like, it's, it's a real, it's an industry thing. And, you know, I, I think a lot of this comes back to things like the contract ultimately, you know, like, and I always like to joke and say, nobody cares about the contract until they feel the other parties in breach of the contract. But I, I find a lot of people, you know, it, it cuts both ways with the owners don't want to be, you know, they feel, Oh, if, if we put these mandates out there, we're going to encumber the, the, the design and construction phase with unrealistic, you know, mandates that they won't be able to push to us. And it's going to be a problem. And then, you know, the EPCs or the construction companies, they're, they're kind of looking for the minimum, right? Like they love it if someone comes back and says, hey, we, we don't want dumb PDFs. We want intelligent drawings that have data centricity. Well, well yeah, we're going to have to pay way more for it. So you get this thing where nobody really puts their feet to the fire. On. And nobody's interested. Yeah. And I mean, again, when you look at like data or a document is fine, but where I think we're data centric is really cool is when, you know, your drawings and things like your, your bill of materials, the, the, the items that get procured, it's like, you know, if you do one change on a pipe specification for <clears throat> a water main here, <clears throat> you can find all instances of that specification via federated query if you're data centric in terms of your design, your construction and your O&M. And most people don't think about that. The, you know, it's just kind of like a sunk cost. They, they build their asset and it's like, okay, well, whatever. We've always done it this way. That, and uh, that actually you know, brings up the... Uh... 
uh, the saying which Sorry, I, know, I can talk on this yeah, no, that brings up the saying which I uh, I remember clearly from uh, Al Pacino. Everyone wants to go to the party, no one wants to stay and clean up. So that, right. that's really the analogy which you're saying that yeah. everyone wants to put all that effort yeah. on, go to the really construction, everyone build, 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 get to that point, yeah. and then once that's done, you know, everyone leaves the party and there we go. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a great thing, Jason. That's a really great point, and I really really like that in terms of the focus of what you're saying here with the data centric, which is absolutely amazing to think about how there's such an expanded world after that construction project. And there's such a, uh, uh, a wide world, which we could actually do things a lot better. So that's really amazing. And it, it really, it gives, it gives the minds a lot to ponder about that. So sorry, I, well, I, I, <laughs> I caught you in a tangent. No, I, I mean, I think it does, you know, and it's it's one of these things, again, like if you look at, um, you know, and I, someone asked me one time, they're like, well, why is data centricity really important in understanding this? And I said, well, okay, here's an example. You know, and I almost want to do this one time at a conference or something like that where I'm speaking about data centricity and I want, like I have four sons um, and my older two, they'd be too good at this now, but maybe my younger two, there's a big gap between number two and number three. But anyways, maybe I do this with my younger two and I have a video rolling in the upper right corner. And it, I heard this once from my oldest son and he called, you know, Lego instead of instructions, he called them constructions. And I'm like, that's actually a, a salient point because why does Lego work? Okay. You look at each page. So you, everybody dumps their Lego out and you put it by color right? And you've got all the different pieces that are there. Why does it work? It works because, you know, it's, it's, um, there, there's a, you know, everything is like, I guess, uh, not homogenous. It's like hetero. Well, no, that's not the right term either, but like, it, it's all Lego. You're not trying to build it with mega block, mega blocks, Lego plasticine and pipe cleaners or something like that. Right. When yeah, you start doing data centric models, okay, what happens when someone's building each page? It's like, okay, I need these four pieces. That's equivalent to like your bill materials. Great. But you can see on a data center, you're not just looking at the drawing. It's telling you what pieces you need to construct. You know, what I was doing with my kids, just as an example, I did this for my father one time to try and explain it to him over there. And I had the younger guy looking at the page, grabbing all the pieces that were needed and giving them to the older brother to build. Right. So one of them was and it was like because and I mean, that's inherently part of the construction process anyway. So it's not like I'm, I'm you know, I have anything profound here. But the reason it works is because it is data centric. You can actually find these little pieces. What happens? And again, this is the trickle on of like going from that issued for construction, which ends up in the ground in utilities and then it gets backfilled. So it's never as built at all. Like you say, it's as maybe, um, you know, you've got someone that's looking there, there's more accountability all through the process because someone has to account for the, the the data specificity of what the design is and then how it's executed in construction as well. So it, it implies more accountability through the entire process, which should land at a finished product that is known, right? I mean, you can actually physically start counting all the data pieces of the assembly, the constructability of what was built. See it coming it's together. coming together, right? So, I mean, Again, it's like kind of like you start a little snowball and roll it down the hill, it becomes a big one. I mean, that can be good or bad, right? I mean, if, if, if you start bad in design, you're going to end up with a big heap and pile. Well, okay, your commodity is working, your, your asset's on, but what have you got for it? Versus the other approach, which might be a little bit slower. And again, I feel like in some cases when you're talking to people, it's almost like having conversations with children about this kind of stuff. Like they clean the room and what are you? You open the closet once and you get killed by a landslide. It's, it's just kind of everybody just kind of pushes stuff off to the side, right? But I mean, that's, it's kind of how the industry works in, in some ways, right? So anyways. How, how do you connect this to, um, to what's happening in the utility space? Well, I mean, for me, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing, like I walk, so I've spent time in refineries, industrial facilities, and I, I always used to say the kind of joke, like, hey, if, if there's rust on it, it probably needs, uh, you probably need to understand your asset structure more. And they're like, like, dude, these support beams, they're rusted before we assemble them. I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's the joke. Like, the, it's, it's immediately being built and you have no idea. make us feel more comfortable. So, yeah. and that's with something that you can physically see. So. You know, th this is like, I can look at a drawing. I can look at the, the bill of materials for something, walk into that, you know, unit in a facility and say, this isn't what I can see right in front of me. That happens all the time. And that's with things that you can see. So, 
I mean, let's just take the human condition and say, now you've got things that are 10 feet underground or 20 feet underground. How, like, do you, I mean, in what sane mind would someone trust that when, when we know, when we physically see it, it's not the way it is. Right. So, and then you look at it and you say, well, you know, generally infrastructure, uh, oddly things that support just the day to day, uh, you know, um, like a lot of this stuff has been put in the ground like over 70 years ago, right? And I mean, you look at the metrics, there's two and a half million miles of road in North America. And that's basically, roadways are a free right of way, essentially. So, so many utilities are buried under or adjacent to a roadway. The number is there's 35 million miles of utility lines underneath the roadways, right? So... I mean, I think a lot of these things are just in disrepair. And then because it's sight unseen, the other thing that you have is people like you get horizontal directional drilling, you know, that's improved over time. So people are just like, Hey, just plug it into the ground and that thing will snake along. If it finds something, it'll just move. Well, how do you even as build that? now? You know, you've got an as design issue for construction drawing, but that thing has a bit of a mind of its own when it starts going in, you know, like the, the, the pipe lengths are when they're boring are about, I'm just sorry. They're like, you know, 10 feet long um, for like a three inch or four inch pipe. It's like, well, you know, this thing's moving all over the damn place. So I, I don't know, but I mean, I, I you know, I, I've seen when ground gets exposed, just they did it the other day on my block, but well, not the other day, a few months ago. And it's like, you look in it, I'm walking around and talking to the Volker Steven guys. And I'm like, how do you know what's there? Like, we well, have no idea. And it's like, well, no doubt, you know, like I have no idea what I'm looking at and this is my industry. So, um, you know, you're just looking at dirt colored pipes, you know, it's like, well, uh, good luck on intelligently figuring out where this stuff goes. Hang on, right? so, so, I mean, I think are you on 14th street during, right now with the BRT then? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not no, I'm, I'm, I live down in Willow Park. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We were years. talking about that. Yeah. 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 yeah so, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, there's, for, for the utility industry, there's a lot of improvement that could be out there. And then, and then you know, the other thing, too, I think there's a problem. And, uh, you know, Ophir, you'd know, because we were talking with uh, Steve Slusarenko about the uh, new R initiative in the UK, the National Underground Asset Registry, and maybe is there something we could do in Canada for that? And it's like, and then you have things like, you know, like your telcos, Um and they view this as like IP, right? Like, so, and they kind of, yeah. the, if they have the, if they have the regulatory permission to operate in a place, they're just going to go in and do it. Like be damned with anybody else. And I guess from a commercial, I mean, they're a slave to their shareholders, like any publicly traded company. Like, why wouldn't you do that? But then, you know, to try and like, where's the diplomacy to say, Hey, okay, is there a better way of doing this? And I mean, I think that's why I think it's really cool what they're trying to do with the new R initiative in the UK but it's like, I mean, really, that's not much of an engineering problem. That's more of a, a legal and diplomatic program to try and get everybody to bring their data together, right? Well, um, hang on. Uh, I'm going off on the uh, I'm gonna, guys, but. I'm going to ask you a question right now. The actual pedigree of the data which is brought forth, and uh, the, yep. they're going to be giving different levels of pedigree. They're going to say, well, you know what? It's accurate enough to get you started. And understanding that and having that as a uh, – as a first initial understanding, is that most important thing, knowing that it's not going to be perfect, but knowing that at least I'll have it accountable, that I'll have the accounting for it, saying, okay, I have 15 utilities, I have 15 utilities accounted for, and now I can actually take that next step and start looking for them. Like, isn't that the whole point of, uh, of NUAR, just to have an accountability within it? And, you know, we, we talk about, uh, yeah. we talk about IP and so on and so forth, but, you know, the truth be known, if it's going to be about accountability and it's going to be a benefit for the good of the people, uh, of, of course, you, you may have your objections, but you're going to go along with it at the end because you want to be a part of society or you want to be a part of the uh, the solution, per se. Do you see anything along those lines with uh, the new uh, Canadian utility infrastructure? Um, yeah, I, I'm getting the sense it could be, you know, I mean, I think inherently there, there's a couple of things that are, I think are always going to be a barrier in Canada. Like we're just so geographically dispersed, right? That I think that's always going to create a little bit of a problem. But, you know, I, I, you know, what you've said, I think you've said a lot and I think it makes a lot of sense and it really is about accountability, you know, and I think when you look at things, for me, there's a couple things, threads to pull out. Number one is safety, right? Like when I was in university, um, 
And, you know, I talked to my father who's like, he's about 70 now. Right. And like safety was kind of like, okay, it was like, you got a mug in a bag for if they had so many, you know, million uh, hours without a lost time. Instant. But like now it's serious. Like it, it is legitimately serious stuff. If, if companies cannot execute, like if they have too many claims in an area, they may not even be able to insure their own projects. So they can't even bid on them. So safety is no joke. I mean, it, it literally, literally has to be there. And then there's the aspect of just like that, that, I think there's the optics of being part of a of a of a public public pool, which are good, right? And you see companies doing that. And I think about this on the energy side, and hopefully this you know thread kind of ties things together here. At least it does in my mind, but you guys can verify this for me. But like, you know, it's like you know, energy companies often invest in renewables strictly because of optics. From from an actual shareholder financial perspective, they don't have like it, they're not really it's not that good. It doesn't, it doesn't make, make sense. sense. Yeah. But what makes sense for them initially is to bring it online. They have the capacity to do the work, to, you know, and they're getting government, you know, they're taking advantage of subsidies to bring an asset online and then they sell it somewhere that can deal with smaller margins, smaller points on the, you know, that, that uh, you know, like say like, you know, Enbridge will bring something online and then sell it to the Ontario Teachers uh, pension board, uh, yeah, Omers. Pension board yeah. or whatever, and it's like they're fine with three and a half points per year. I mean, Enbridge, their shareholders will be like, you know, clamoring at the gates if they're only getting three and a half on something, right? So, but I think the same type of thing. The optics really should matter to these companies, right? I mean, people are being more and more ethical in their decisions, and I think when you start to see companies that are not participating in kind of things that are are good for society, and you can put enough you know, um, points on the ledger to say, hey, this is good from a safety perspective, economic perspective, you know, um, it prevents perhaps the the appearance of collusion between some of these, you know, telcos and various companies. I think all these are things that, you know, people have to be respectful of, you know, the same thing, like when people like, you know, it's, it's a, you know, disruptive, right? And I mean, I think you're seeing things that can very instantly be disruptive. And then, you know, these monoliths, I mean, it, it doesn't take much for some of these companies. And I've seen it in the midstream industry where, you know, um, you know, you get like, a, who is it? En Enbridge uh, bought Spectra, right? Like two years before that, everybody thought there's no chance that could happen. It's like, well, you know, giants rise and fall all the time. And I mean, we're seeing that even more prolifically now. So I think not doing your best to try and kind of, and I'm not saying you have to kowtow to, to like the public sentiment but there's there's an element of that that i think is really important i'd like to see that more in canada and the u.s more collaborative to say hey this is really for the betterment and the other thing too is optically and, and this is another thing that i've seen in in calgary and I, i'm staunchly a supporter of oil and gas i think it's it's very important moving forward you can't just say hey everybody go green but I'm not also obtuse to the fact that, hey, the rest of Canada, the rest of the world, they they see when the oil and gas industry is going crazy and people spend money like drunks at a blackjack table. That, optically, that's bad. You, you don't get public sentiment in your favor when you do that. So you could steward your business in a better way, right? And I think the same way when you start seeing people just hemorrhaging dollars every day to get their telco costs. And it's like, you know, like people with like a, a TELUS bill now with phones and so they'll be spending $300 a month. It's like, uh, you know, yeah. eventually someone's going to come by that's going to disrupt that. And it's going to be like, tell us, see you later. You didn't do anything for us before. You could have been doing better. Right. And I think that's those kind of things are often not uh, not well thought of um, when people make so their decisions. I'm going to ask you a question and talking about disruption, talking about all these different things. What happens when legislation comes to, uh, to bear? For example, in Colorado. Okay. Right. How is that? Like our mandate. Well, exactly. What, you know, what's going on with the. What I see with uh, the Canadian utility infrastructure uh, registration is is literally what has been done in Colorado by through legislation. What uh, right? So, well, you know, like, like, and I think so. That mandate number one is really good. I think the second thing mandates are usually precipitated off of something, and and, and I think what really kind of tipped the needle, and it was it predated my time, so this isn't my story, but I kind of make it a little bit my story because of the company. But there was there was an explosion in Colorado, and I think four or five people lost their life. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, an old lady's house. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Like you look, I mean, yeah. I, I like, can you imagine being a foreman and having to make that call to someone? Like that's this, no one wants. Like I mean, 
nobody wants like you know your son goes off to the military or okay fine you know they're a, a, a you know first responder police officer you know there's inherently that kind of risk but like is it fair to say just because a guy's a, a pipeline construction worker that they should inherit that kind of risk? Like, that's crazy, right? And But, I mean, someone had to make that call. That was really what precipitated that mandate. Someone said, hey, there's probably a better way of doing this, and we have to do something now, you know? So, um, uh, sorry, hang on. Just to press yeah. just for everyone's information who's listening, if you look up uh, the Colorado uh, governing laws regarding uh, one call. So, right now, Colorado actually governs. Uh, that any public project that is going forth in the public right away must have a sue investigation prior to actually executing uh, the work and actually going out for construction. So it's really put down another level of uh, due diligence and duty of care on the actual constructability, the feasibility, and also the the safety factor. That when it only go, when it finally goes to construction and they get those one call marks, those are just the confirmations for excavation and not uh, on the fly engineering and hoping for the best. So that's, that's awesome summary. Um, I should, you know, watch that and repeat because that, that's, a, <laughs> I could use that in my own pitches. Yeah, as long as, as long it. as you say, hey, oh, fear from four M sets this, I'm good with that. That's, that's right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Socrates or something like that. Right. But yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> that's it. You know, and I mean, like, like you see, the Sioux investigation is out there, right? And I mean, we, everybody's aware, well, maybe not everybody, but there's the different, um, you know, classifications of the quality of data. And it's still, it's, it's a, it's a perception, but that the category A, B, C, and D, right? And I mean, so like when you get that category A, that's only at when you can physically daylight or, you know, I'd even say go so far as to say, really, it's almost in your as building, right? You've got an open trench, something you can physically see the asset, a valve, the pipe, top of pipe, and you can survey that in. And then how you propagate that data downstream of that. And we know there's a certain amount of like interpolation between points because it's sight unseen. You're not going to, you know, uh, you know, dig up a trench so you can see your physical asset everywhere. That's fine. But to take that, do that Sioux investigation, right? Not only does it give you perspective on what's in the ground and what's around, but then, you know, I look at it, the the importance of that mandate for, say, like in Colorado, it does a couple things. Number one, Colorado's drawn a line in the earth and they've said, okay, we, you know, this accident happened. Now, inside the CDOT Colorado Department of Transportation right-of-way, thou shalt do this, period. So they know from this day forth, everything that they reposit into their production environment or their, their system of record, they may not know outside of with 100% accuracy of where these utilities are, but they know in their right-of-way, they're de-risking future well, shovels. Hang on. They're also they're going, going also going forward. They're implementing AC 75. So the ASPIL standards, so they're working That's both right. hand in hand, the before, the during, and then the after. That's right. So every, you know, everything that's going to go in there from that date, when they put that mandate down, they know that date is good. And I mean, they're, they're requiring, like, they're going to have that audit traceability. They can see which company collected it, when it was collected, you know, the, the quality, the pedigree of that information and the, you know, not only that, but like, there's that benchmark pedigree that's acceptable. If they get stuff that's unacceptable, it's like, well, they'll return it. It's like, hey, contractually, you haven't met your obligation to this project. Interesting. Whether it be brownfield or greenfield. That's really important type stuff, you know? Like, so over time, over duration, what will they have? They'll have a very good asset database, right? Um, so I think, you know, the, the, those type of mandates are really important, number one. And, and number two, when you get them out there, and this is from a commercial perspective, for anybody operating there, you know, it, I think, you know, some people could say, hey, does it cannibalize your opportunity to do better work with other companies? Some people feel encumbered, like, oh, damn, I don't want to do CDOT work because I have to do this. Well, maybe, but again, this comes back to the optics. If your peers are doing that, right, like, like eventually, are you going to find yourself on an island that's crumbling around your feet because you refuse to provide enhanced um you know, enhanced deliverables or, or have a better level of engagement in the field via your processes, right? Like this is an opportunity for people to do better work. And generally it's a sunk cost anyways. Like if I look at the locating industry, people go out, they locate, they paint a mark on the ground. Great. Okay. They're out there already. You know, like it does, it's not that much more incrementally to get better information that someone can use. Right. And I mean, I look at things where, you know, someone paints the ground and then a surveyor is going to go out there and survey a paint mark. Like, I mean, surveyors don't like that. They, 
like surveyors are precise by nature and like there's imprecision by nature in surveying a paint mark on the ground. Right. So, I mean, all this type of stuff, I mean, again, sometimes you keep competing with the operational cost of it's always been this way and I get it and it's not going to be instantaneous, but these types of mandates, I think incrementally over time, people say, okay, yeah, based on the merit of, of, of different applications, different processes, you know, different techniques, we know we can get a better level of accuracy. And I think it's important for everybody to understand there's, there's a lot of ramification and there's value in being able to do that. Too. Jason, that's, that's, that's so much, you know, like, you've really given us a lot to think about and, and collectively, I think that uh, all the different firms that they're working to, to gain solutions uh, in this space, you know, what's before, you know, what are you coming into and what are you going, what are you going to get out of it, the input and the output right through and through. Uh, David, I'm looking at our time right now and I think, uh, uh, not that I wanted to do this, but, uh, you know, th this, there's so much to think about, so much to talk about here. Uh, we could have you on for another four hours and, and keep on going. <laughs> but, uh, David? Yeah. I, th I think yeah. we need to we need to end with our yeah. with our two final every questions time, that sure. we ask uh, we ask every guest. Okay. So for, first first question, in two or three sentences, what do you think is the biggest the, the most meaningful thing that our industry needs to change? Um, Going back to yeah. Socrates, uh, yeah, yeah, Robert De Niro is also good. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe this is too general, but um, I, I believe, you know, in, in construction and engineering, people in, are well-intended. These are very bright people, right? Like when you start talking to a surveyor who understands geodesy, mapping, like there's no joke. These guys are smart. They're literally like rocket scientists, right? They know what they're, know what they're talking about. I think, you know, technology has advanced so quickly and what we've seen from construction and stuff, like it, oddly, jobs are not being done any better than they were 30 years ago. That's an indictment on the industry. I think there's a lot of apathy and I think it's individually people need to understand they're, you know, they have to be, as we talked about accountability, I think the accountability for everybody to say, I want to associate my name with a better quality, be damned with what we've done in the past. Right there, there has to be. There's the the opportunity cost of doing things better. Just because we've always done it this way doesn't make it better. And I'm I'm getting older and crotchety. You know, like with my boys, I'll tell them like, yeah, like it just this is the way I've always done it. It's wrong. I mean, you have to always be continually innovating. And these people are fully capable of innovating and looking for enhancements. And I think when you do that, there's there's better ways. You know, and I mean, you do the classic thing. You know, you guys are in software too, right? Like. Oh, like when someone's talking to you, like, well, we've always done it this way. This is the way we do our process. Well, if you want to replicate exactly the way you're doing it now, why are you talking to me about software or, or, or 4M? Like we're offering you a better way of doing something, right? A faster way or whatever. And I think it's people need to have an open mind to that. So I, I don't know if that's quite the answer you're looking for, but I think. You know, anything. For you, that yeah. For your looking opinion, for your opinion. Anything you would have said, we would have accepted. Yeah. <laughs> um, Second question, Jason. Sure. Who do you think we should have in our podcast next? Ooh. Who would be good next? Uh, I'm waiting for Paige to get in touch with me, by the way, because I, I always like talking to Paige. But, uh... Paige, Paige would be a good one. Yeah. I mean, he's he's pretty passionate about this as well. But um, we'll, we'll give it a few weeks in between you and him so that you can get your uh, you can get your uh, 10 minutes of fame with us, and, and then we can bring him in for his <laughs> You know, I, I think there's um, – one of them have you have you guys had Rob on? Rob Martindale. Rob he's he's a, a very good potential. He he's one of the catalysts for the change in the industry. So he he is. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of securing time with him, of course. But uh, yeah. so, so yeah. Rob Martindale, um, we're yeah. coming for you. Yeah, I think he'd be a good one um, for you guys. You know, there's a I think there's a lot of people that are pretty passionate about it. You know. Um, and, and one thing I would say kind of ties into my last comment, you know, like there's, and this is one of the things that I know, like, you know, oper we talked about operations, that data and, 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 you know, managing an asset once it's done, once you get into the O&M cycle, 
when you're trying to change something on the operations side of business, like those mandates, like with federal or state or an owner operator, that's really tough because op- like they only have a, a finite amount of money to spend. And generally they have to replace an existing process. So you're, it's not just net new. A lot of this can be pushed, I think, on the project space, because if you get the right PM that says, I'm going to do something different. And usually the PMs are hired. Why? Because they get jobs done on time and on budget. Right. But if you catch them at the right time, I think a lot of these initiatives, these enhancements, the better deliverables, they can look and say, and you can appeal to their sense to want to do better, to be kind of like, uh, you know, on the soapbox, look at what I did for this company. Right. And I think project space is really active and there can be a lot of improvements from that because if if projects is executed well, it's going to go to operations. Right. So fantastic. You you know what, into just a a real summary of, everything that we've been talking about in the past 12 episodes. And there is that focus, which all of us have to do better. And collectively, I think we're going to get there. And I collectively, I think uh, I keep on, you know, the, the funny thing is I did these podcasts with David and our associated guests, and I keep on going back to them and picking up these little tidbits from our different guests and going, wait a minute, I'm actually going to incorporate that into my day today because that is, a really logical thing and that is a, a great thing and, and jason i'll tell you today i've 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 really appreciate i've i've taken a lot of uh, different things which you've said and i'm i'm also going to apply them within my uh, my day-to-day realm because you know they they really work and you know even if that, right. that, that, yeah, that, that one little thing you know if you take that right. one little nugget out of every single conversation and you apply it into your life as a best practice you're going to be doing a lot better than you were today you know you're going to be doing a lot better than you were yesterday just by uh yep. compiling and adding uh adding information to your life and actually using it so yep i i think that's a good way to work i try and do the, a similar thing um for both you know it's like that that kind of if you have a half percent improvement yeah. per day and you're compounding that it's yeah. like i mean <laughs> it's almost unrealistic. Like, could you be doubly effective in a year? Well, I don't know, but no, because, I mean, because you're, you're right always going to have that day where you're going to take away 10% by doing something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the truth yeah. is the uh, mistakes are the best way to learn anything. And if you, if you don't learn from your mistakes and your, your field to do them, but if you Absolutely. keep on learning from what you've done wrong and applying those lessons, Hey, it's the sky's the limit. So, Yep. David, I'll let you. <laughs> I, I yeah, yeah, wrap it up. So, Jason, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll have another episode. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'd love to. Anytime. Um, we'll catch up. I'm, I'm sure I'll probably overlap with Ophir at a conference or two. Uh, One or two, yeah. One or two. Definitely. <laughs> Wonderful, I'm sure. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jason. Uh,